Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. Those of you who, uh, excuse me, like to follow in, your, follow in your Bibles, you're welcome to open with me at Luke chapter 10, the last couple of verses of Luke chapter 10. Um, very interesting and uh, I think a beautiful story, account of, of Jesus and uh, two women called uh, Mary and Martha. So, uh, Luke 10, I'm going to read from verse 38 to 42. It says, Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's uh, feet and listened to his teaching. Uh, But Martha was distracted with much serving. Um, And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And I'm going to share a bit about it in a a moment. But um, first I just want to, I want us to, just pray together, um, like you saw on the on the announcements on the 13th and the 20th of June. We're going to have big group meetings. So on Wednesday, those Wednesdays, we're not going to get together in our small groups all across the uh, city as usual. But we're going to we're going to get together in in large groups um, uh, once in Santon and once in um, in yeah, yeah in in Randburg. But uh, uh, yeah. It's uh, two, two separate sessions, so it's not the, we're not repeating the same session twice. So, so please make sure that you, that you attend both of them. It's going to be about the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and as we'll see at the end, um, in, in, to some extent that's, that, that, that applies to what Jesus is talking about here. Um, when, when God, um, when Jesus says we must, there's, there's one thing that, that is necessary. What is that one thing? Part of the one thing is obviously seeking Him, not just um, other stuff or doing things for Him, but really seeking Him, seeking God, seeking Jesus, and seeking the Holy Spirit. Um, and <clears throat> I've, I've done a, a lot of study you know, about the New Testament. One of the things I, I, I did, for instance, when I did my master's, was really just thinking about what is the crux of being Saved. What is the crux of being a Christian? What is the crux of conversion and, and being part of the kingdom? And the one irreducible minimum that I could come up with was the Holy Spirit. The one thing, if I can put it this way, the one thing without which or without whom you cannot be a Christian is the Holy Spirit. You can, um, you can pretend to have faith. You can... You can um, everyone believes in something. You know, you can sort of almost believe the right things, <laughs> or you can at least confess the right things, um, but, but not actually be saved. 
And there are, there are examples of people who do that in the Bible, who, who make all the right noises, but they're not actually, their hearts aren't actually changed. Um, but, but the one thing, if, if, you, if you have Him, if you have the Holy Spirit, then you really are Christian. If you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. So I just want us to pray for a moment, and um, I want us to, to really pray that and ask God to um, really pour out His Holy Spirit on this city. Because, um, I mean, that's the main thing that we as people need, is we need God's Holy Spirit. And when we have God's Holy Spirit, He causes everything else to fall into place with time. So, so I just want us to turn, just for two minutes or so, just to, to, to one another in groups of two or three, and just pray and just ask God to pour out His Holy Spirit, uh, a fresh outpouring for us and an outpouring upon this whole city. Let's just, let's just pray for a couple of minutes. Yes, Father God, we just want to thank You. For your Holy Spirit, Lord. We want to thank you, Holy Spirit, that you, that you live inside of us, Lord. We want to thank you, uh, Lord, that, that we can ask you, Lord, uh, for even more of yourself, Lord. Even as in the book of Acts, Lord God, uh, you were poured out on the disciples in Acts chapter 2. And then in Acts chapter 4, they were filled again with the Holy Spirit, Lord. We pray, Lord, that, that we too will be continuously filled with your presence, Lord. Even as, as the Apostle Paul writes, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit, um, singing um, and making melody in your hearts to one another, singing praises to the Lord, encouraging one another. And Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that we will be continuously filled with your presence, Lord. And, Lord, we, we pray not only for us to experience your presence, but we pray, Lord, for 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 more people in this city to experience your presence, Lord. Lord, we, 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 we see, we've seen how, how desperate, Lord, um, people become and the land becomes, now dry the land becomes when there's no physical rain, but, but it's even worse when there's no spiritual rain, as it were, Lord. We, and, Lord, we see a city, Lord, that is dry, Lord God, that is, that is um, yeah, Lord, just unfertile, spiritually speaking, Lord, and that is in such desperate need of your presence. And we pray, Lord, for the presence, the living water of your Spirit to be, to, to be poured out and to rain down on people in the city, Lord. We pray that you'll come and save, Lord. We pray that you'll come and redeem. We pray that you'll come and renew and restore what has been broken. We pray that you'll come and do what only you can do in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, if you, if you want to learn more about the Holy Spirit or just be reminded of the Holy Spirit, please do come uh, on those two dates, the 13th and the, and the 20th of June, and, uh, and come and, and, and join us. And uh, what it's going to be is we're going to watch a, um, a short video clip uh, or two short video clips each evening. Um, so there are four video clips all in all, and then we're going to discuss them in small groups and, and, and learn from one another. Okay, so um, to the text that we, that we read, it's a, it's a very short and a very simple story about Jesus coming, being received by Martha. Mary is the one who sits at Jesus' feet and hears his word, and then Martha gets irritated with her <laughs> because she feels she's being abandoned uh, to do all the work, and Mary is just sitting at the Lord's feet, you know, and slacking, you know, as it were. And then, and then Jesus says that, Mary has chosen the one necessary thing. And 
<clears throat> I, I, when, when I read this passage, I always think of an of a occasion when, when we were still in, in Somerset West and we were driving in our, in our car. We were sort of driving over Broadway, over the bridge, I remember. And we would, so, somehow the, the conversation got to, to this passage and about Mary and Martha and, and, and choosing to sit at the Lord's feet and, and learn from his word. Uh, and, and, you know, we were sort of trying to, I mean, in, in Deuteronomy 6, he talks about, you know, uh, talk to your children when you, when you rise up and when you lie down, when you, when, you, when, you, when you leave and when you come back and, you know, all, all that stuff in, in the morning and the evening, you know, um, you know, instructing your children in the ways of the Lord. So we were trying to sort of do that. And, you know, I was all excited about this opportunity, you know, and, and talking about sitting at the Lord's feet and so on. And, and when I was done, um, I asked you, the, the kids, because I was sitting at the back, you know, do you, do you have any questions? If you can just bring up, Kirsten was still, how old was Kirsten? Five, four, five, somewhere around there. Um, and Kirsten said, but Papa, feet are so disgusting. <laughs> and she completely missed the point of the story. <laughs> but it was very cute, you know. <laughs> But I, 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 it just reminded me that this is such a simple story, but it's actually so easy to miss the point of the story. Um, firstly, even though two women uh, are, the, are, the, are the characters who dominate the story, the story is not about women. It's actually about disciples in general. And these two women as examples of disciples. So it applies to everyone. But the, the fact that, that it is about women is actually very interesting and in some ways instructive. <clears throat> because in those days, um, in, in most cultures, in, in fact in all the cultures, uh, women were pretty much marginalized and second-class citizens. Uh, in, in both the Jewish culture and in the Greco-Roman culture, um, women, for the most part, were actually treated like property. You know? And, and they, 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 their testimony didn't count for very much in a, in a court of law. You know, if they could even testify in a court of law, and um, so it's actually very illuminating that, um, firstly, the way Jesus treats women we see is very different from the way the culture treats women. But the fact that that Jesus has this interaction with women and actually allows women to sit at his feet, not only allows it but encourages it. Can you see he's actually encouraging it? Is revolutionary. I mean, the, the, the rabbis of that time um, did not allow it, most rabbis. They, they would, some of them would graciously allow women to learn the Torah, but they would never allow them to officially sit at their feet and receive an official education, rabbinic education. Jesus didn't only allow it, he encouraged it. It was, it was completely revolutionary. Um, but the fact that Luke actually includes these accounts about women in the gospel tells us um, or, or reminds us of the truth of the gospel, that, that these are, this really happened. I mean, if, if the disciples later up were making up all these stories about Jesus, as some people say they were, I'm, I'm sure you've heard it, yeah, the, the church later on, you know, decades later, you know, Jesus was a normal teacher, just a normal guy, good moral teacher and so on, but not really the son of God, didn't really die on a cross, didn't really rise from the dead, but he was a good moral teacher. And then later the church sort of embellished all of that and added all of these stories. Well, in a culture that didn't 
that marginalized women and that didn't value women's testimonies, in fact, looked at women's testimonies with suspicion, looked down upon women, would it have... I mean, would it, would it have helped the, the disciples later on, the church, decades later, if they were inventing a religion to include that? Would it have helped their cause? Would it have endeared them to the culture? No. In fact, we know that some of the biggest objections that, that, that people, some of the, the Roman citizens, had to the church was the fact that it was, in their words, um, a religion of women's children and slaves. Because those were the people that, were, that they usually excluded, and now in Christianity they were included. And secondly, that the first eyewitnesses at the, at the resurrection were women. This was some of the arguments that people in the Roman Empire used to say, well, obviously Christianity cannot be true, or, or really, you know, uh, noble or, or, or respectable, you know, if, if women have such a high um, place, you know, an equal place in Christianity. But... Obviously, to us, that shows us that this must be true. I mean, the disciples would not have invented it if they were trying to create a religion that was acceptable and popular and get people to follow it. So, so it actually shows us that, that what we're reading here is not just a story, a nice story that was made up. The only reason to include it is if, if it really happened. You know? If you just think about it, even if, you, if, you, if you're still making up your mind whether you believe the Bible or not, you know, this must be true. It rings true if you look at it in, in, the, in, in, the, in the context. But it, this is, like I said, not, not a story primarily about women, but about disciples in general with, with these two women as, as examples. And also, the, the point is not that the activity of Martha was wrong. Jesus is not pleased with Martha, displeased, sorry, he's not displeased with Martha's activity. Um, often in the Bible, it says that hospitality is good. Show hospitality. Let me, let me just maybe read you one example in, in Romans 12. Romans 12 verse 13 says, uh, con- Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Uh, you can also look in, in scriptures like 1 Timothy 5 verse 10, um, Hebrews 13 verse Right there, 2, 1 Peter 4, verse 9, all over the place in the New Testament, it says, show hospitality. And hospitality is commanded and encouraged. So Jesus is not upset with Mary's um, activity and what she's doing. It's, you know, it's, it, some, some people say, oh, yeah, you know, Jesus is showing that um, the contemplative approach to Christianity, you know, sort of. Um, being reflective and quiet and sitting at his feet is better than sort of the, the activist approach, you know, of doing lots of stuff. But that's not at all the point. In fact, if you sit at Jesus' feet and, and learn from him, as we're going to see, you're going to become like him and do what he did. And Jesus did a lot of more than even Martha did, <laughs> you know. So why would he tell us not to do so? That, the point is not to discourage activity. And, 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 uh, and doing things. So, so what is it about? And I'm, I just want to look at, um, at this passage under, under three headings. What is Jesus addressing? Firstly, he's addressing destructive attitudes. He's addressing distracted priorities. And, he's, uh, and then, then he gives the solution of a decisive to- choice. So under those three headings, I'm going to discuss it. Destructive attitudes, distracted priorities, and decisive choices. So firstly, destructive attitudes... 
Um, you know, it's easy to, like Martha, start doing the right things for the wrong reasons. I mean, that's one of the problems in Christianity. I mean, if you think about the group that Jesus confronted most in the Gospels, the, the Pharisees, to a large extent, they were doing a lot of right things. They were praying, but they were praying for the wrong reasons. They were fasting, but they were fasting for the wrong reasons. They were giving, but they were giving for the wrong reasons. They were trying to be holy, but they were trying to be holy with the wrong motives. And it's so easy for us to fall into that trap. And I think this is part of what, what happened here with Martha. Jesus doesn't so much have a problem with her actions as with her attitudes. That is a, a big part of the problem here. So what Jesus is after is not just right actions, but right attitudes. And so much of religion today even is nothing more than behavior modification putting an, on an external cosmetic form of Christianity, but without having the true, authentic heart change that should actually produce it, or, or right attitudes. In other words, <clears throat> Jesus has a problem. Part of the problem that Jesus has here with, 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 with Martha is that what she's doing is from the outside in rather than from the inside out. You see, all other religions are from the outside in. The world, when it tries to change people, it tries to change them from the outside in. Let's change people's environment, and then they will change. It doesn't work that well. <laughs> Even when it works for a little while, it's not sustainable. It doesn't last. But, but the gospel is radically different. It's not an outside-in thing. It's not an outside-in transformation uh, or, or conformation, because you don't really transform when it's from the outside in. You just conform. But it's a transformation from the inside out. So it starts with the attitudes and then leads to the, to the actions. starts with the right attitudes and then reads, leads to the right actions. So Jesus didn't disapprove of Martha's actions. He disapproved of her attitudes. And we see this, if you just look at the, the portion that precedes this, um, this account, it's the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. And how does the parable of the Good Samaritan end? With a command to... Go and do likewise. In other words, activity. Doing stuff to serve one another. Like the Samaritan served the guy who, who was attacked by the thieves. Went out of his way to serve the, the guy. So, so clearly Jesus <laughs> does not have a problem with serving and with activity. He in fact is encouraging it. There's something else that he has a problem with. And as we see, it's the attitudes that he has a problem with. So... The progression of bad attitudes um, that we see in Martha um, sort of is, is a good picture for us for the bad attitudes that we often have. And, and, and there's a progression that I want you to see that goes something like this. Firstly, it says in, in verse 40, she was distracted by much serving. Now, what does it mean to be distracted? And, and we're going we're to talk about the distraction in, in a little while um, in order to be distracted from something, you must first be attracted to it. Right? Distracted is the opposite of attracted. Okay? So, in other words, there was something that she should have done or actually wanted to do, but then got distracted from. Okay? And um, that distraction by other things, it says she was distracted by much serving. And like we said, there's nothing wrong with serving. 
But that good thing of serving has become, had become a distraction to her. So she was distracted by much serving. Um, leads to inattention, in her case, inattention to Jesus. She's paying attention to other things, and she's not paying attention to Jesus. And so, so often we, we do the same. In other words, distraction is, is, is not just when we focus on bad things. It's when we focus on good things when we should be focusing on the best things. You get that? Distraction is not just when we focus on bad things. Because when we think of distraction, we usually think, okay, it's you know, when I focus on bad stuff. No, no, no. Good stuff can be a distraction. Distraction can be when I focus on good things at the expense of the best things. Um, that, that can be a distraction. So inattention to Jesus. And then... Um, obviously, if you're not focusing on Jesus, you have to focus on something or someone else. And what almost inevitably happens is we start focusing on ourselves. Her focus has shifted from Jesus to herself. She was focusing on herself and the things that she had to do. Now, focus is an interesting thing. Um, I have a, a colleague, Anton Mayberg, and he explains it in this way. I just want you to quickly hold up your finger, hold up one of your fingers like this, and, and look past your finger at my hand, okay? Okay? Now, stop looking at my hand and start looking at your finger, okay? Don't look at my hand, look at your finger. Keep, keep it pointed in, in the same direction, but look at your finger. Don't, don't stop looking at your finger. I'm going to hold up my fingers, but, but I don't want you to look at my fingers. I want you to continue looking at your finger. And I want you to try and see if you can see how many fingers I'm holding up. So keep looking at your finger. Okay, how many fingers did I hold up? Who, who of you didn't see it? A lot of you didn't see it. What's the point? The point is, it's very difficult to focus on more than one thing at a time, right? When you focused on one thing... It means everything else. Um, it's, it's like that song that we sing. Um, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. When, when, when I focus on Jesus, then other things fade out of focus. It's like a camera. When you fo- when I f- if I focus, I was taking a photo, if I focused on this, this heater here in the middle, then the people sitting there, Shana and the guys sitting there at the back, would sort of fade in the background and they'd be blurry. And when she shifted her focus away from Jesus to herself, then Jesus became blurry. And we so often do the same. And not only um, did she focus on herself but when she started focusing on herself, then she started becoming overwhelmed by the challenges in front of her. Because she now had to serve, she now had to uh, prepare food and work and prepare meals and all that kind of stuff. And it's amazing that when we focus on Jesus, he's bigger than any of the challenges that we face. But when we focus on ourselves, very often we are a lot smaller than the challenges we face. And our challenges start overwhelming us. They start crushing us. They start getting us down. They start causing us to stress. You see, when you're focused on yourself, you keep coming to God to tell Him how big your challenges are. But when you're focusing on God, you keep telling your challenges how big your God is. Because your focus is on the right place. And you can see the difference between a great God and actually, relatively speaking, small challenges. 
But when you're focusing on yourself, your challenges look a lot bigger. A lot bigger. And um, so she became overwhelmed by the challenges. And then self-pity sets in. Because when you focus on yourself, it's almost inevitable that self, when you are faced with challenges that feel overwhelming, you start feeling sorry for yourself. Because here I am all alone, and I have to do all the work, and it's too much for me. And blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Can you see where self-pity comes from? It comes from a self-focus. And, and we need to remind ourselves of this, that the root of our self-pity, and, and let's not pretend, any of us, that, that we've never felt it. I think all of us have felt it at some stage. But when we feel self-pity, we know it's because our focus is wrong. Our focus is on ourselves. We're looking at ourselves instead of at Jesus, and then we feel sorry for ourselves. And then you become desperate because of your own limited capacity. You start becoming desperate, and you start looking around um, and start comparing yourself to others. How much am I doing? How much are they doing? I'm doing so much more than them. They're just sitting there, you know, soaking it in, you know, and I'm doing all the hard work, you know. Comparison. When you're focused on yourself, it's very difficult not to fall into comparison and start comparing yourself to others and then saying, but I'm doing more. I'm doing all the hard work. And then the natural next step is frustration with those others that you're comparing yourself that you f- with and that you feel should be helping you. You start getting frustrated with them. And you can hear the frustration in Martha's voice when she, when she t- comes and talks to Jesus. You can hear the frustration. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her then, Lord, to come and help me. You can hear the frustration in her voice. But the frustration is not only directed at the others that she expects to help. It's also directed at the Lord. Because, Lord, why aren't you doing anything? You're part of the problem. And it's amazing when we focused on ourselves how easy it becomes to point a finger at God and start accusing Him and start saying that He's part of the problem. And then the final step is not only criticism towards the others that you expect to help you and towards the Lord for not doing more. Because when you focus on yourself, you know, you see what you're doing and it's like the people are not doing enough to help me and even God's not doing enough, you know, to make the people do more, <laughs> you know. So criticism and then finally control. You see what, what Martha does at the end? She starts telling Jesus what to do. Lord, tell my sister to come and help me. Control. When, when we focused on ourselves, the, the natural sort of final step is to try and control things ourselves. Because we focus on ourselves, we see ourselves as the solution, and I'm the only one working in the situation. If I don't do something, no one else will. Can you see that slippery slope in which we slide into destructive attitudes? And it all starts with distraction. Distraction from Jesus. And it leads to all kinds of um, very destructive attitudes. And, and it, it, it's progressive. It gets worse and worse if we don't check it somewhere. So I, I just want to encourage you, if you recognize yourself somewhere down that slippery slope, <laughs> you know what you need to do. You need to change your focus. This is what happens when our 
service for Jesus becomes a distraction from Jesus. When our service for Jesus becomes a distraction from Jesus. Um, in other words, the, 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 the fruit of destructive attitudes grows from the root of distracted priorities. So that's why we're going to talk about priorities now. Because that's a big part. That's actually the crux of what this passage is about, is priorities. I call it um, distracted priorities because um, distraction is a problem of priority. Right? Distraction is a problem of priority. I just want to read you um, a quick passage which just shows how important priorities are. In fact, uh, Anneli, who read it, or a, a parallel version uh, when, she, when she shared um, her testimony during the offering, uh, Luke 12, from verse 22, it says, And he said to the disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat and, what you will, uh, uh, and about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more, or how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that. Just notice the comparison here. For us, something that is impossible, adding an hour to our life, is for Jesus a, a small thing. <laughs> it's easy for him. <laughs> okay? If, um, if then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither to toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And there comes the crux. What is your faith in? Whatever your focus is on is what your faith is in. Whatever your focus is on is what your faith is in. And if you focused on yourself, then obviously you have very little faith in God. You have more faith in yourself than in God. Um, and do not seek what uh, you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek the kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Matthew says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, um, in the words of C.S. Lewis, Aim for heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim for earth and you'll get neither. What's your focus? What are you aiming for? What are you looking at? Um, so distraction is a problem of priority. Uh, and we all struggle to consistently prioritize and put first things first, right? We all struggle with that. And, and we all struggle with it in many areas of our lives. Our, our lives are meaningful to the extent that we're able to put first things first, to the extent that we are able to keep the most important thing the most important thing. Uh, our lives are ineffective to the extent that we fail to do that and focus on all kinds of less important things. 
Sometimes good things, but sometimes not the best things. I mean, just one example, for instance, is, um, I mean, working is good, right? We agree on that. Um, Adam and Eve, Adam worked before the fall, so work is not sin. Okay, that's a paradigm shift, I know. For some of you, that's a big paradigm shift. You're like, what? (laughs) I thought it was because of the fall and because of sin that I had to work, you know. (laughs) Okay, maybe your work environment is a bit sinful because maybe your boss is sinful or something like that. But work per se, I mean, God, the first first time we meet God, we we meet Him working. In the beginning, God created the heaven. That's work, right? God works, and Adam works before the fall, so work is good. But so many men end up focusing so much on work that they neglect their families. Completely neglect their families and their families fall apart. And they're not a husband to their wives. and They're not a father to their children because they're focusing on work. They are distracted by something good, work, from something better, family. It's unhealthy to have exclusive focus on work. Even though work is good, it's unhealthy have exclusive focus on it. Uh, we must uh, put first things first. Um, and let me just, uh, uh, just bring up that diagram. This is a, a well-known diagram. I'm sure all of you have probably seen this. Um, Stephen Covey, uh, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, sort of introduced this thing. And he, and he just has two axes, um, the urgent versus the important. Um, things that are urgent and not urgent and, and, and things that are important and not important and, and sort of four axes, uh, four quadrants, sorry, um, of, of them. And, and he says um, the, the things that are both urgent and important, you, you must just do them. Okay? They're urgent and important, so just do them. And, and, and those things are usually not, they take care of themselves. You don't have to worry about them because they're usually deadlines and there's pressure. Because it is urgent and it's important, they, they usually get done quite easily. You know, they're not much of a problem, okay? Then there are stuff that are urgent but not important. Time wasters, things that may be um, important to other people and urgent to other people but not urgent for you. And, and those are the, typically the things that we should learn to say no to or delegate it to the people that it is important to. If, if it's not important for me to do it, because there are, there are certain things that only I can do, but there are certain things that I can do that other people can also do. Right? I can pray for people, but all of you can also pray for people, right? And, 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 and counsel people. But, but you guys cannot be a father to my children or a husband to my wife. That's some, those are things that only I can do. Okay? So, so maybe there's a place where I need to delegate some counseling so that I can spend more time with my family. I, I, because there are other people who can do the, the former, but not the other people who can do the latter. I'm listening to you if my wife says amen. <laughs> then there are things that are not important and not urgent. Just delete them. If there are emails like that, delete them. If there are activities like that, delete them. They're time wasters. Okay? And, and you know, often, you know, I, I used to... Um, play video games when I was at, at university. I loved playing video games. I think most young men go through a phase when they struggle with that. <laughs> but pff, I can't even remember when was the last time I played a video game because I just realized it's such a time waster to me. It, it, there's nothing productive that happens. I don't grow. I don't accomplish anything. 
Now, I don't, I don't want to put a heavy on guys who are playing video games, but, but think about it. Is it urgent? Is it important? I don't think it, it ticks one of those boxes. But then he says there are certain things that are important but not urgent. And, he's, and, and Covey says this is the difficult part. These are the things that often get neglected because they, they're important. They're very important, but they're not urgent. They don't impose themselves, and they often fall away. And all kinds of stuff, like family, is often there, like um, personal growth. Of course, this passage that we're talking about here, it's, 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 it's in, a, in the context of Jesus um, traveling. He's on the way. There's, there's often that term used, on the way to Jerusalem. And the journey to Jerusalem to go and get crucified... Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem to go to Jerusalem to get crucified. Is a picture, he uses it as a picture for discipleship. And teaches during that whole journey, Luke uses that whole journey as, as a metaphorical picture of discipleship, and it teaches on discipleship. So this is about discipleship, okay? And discipleship, personal growth, becoming more like Jesus, spending time with the Lord, sitting at the Lord's feet and hearing his word and becoming like him. That falls in that quadrant. It's important, but it's not urgent. And so often it's easy to move it aside and to deal with other things. So, so in other words, I mean, that paradigm of the urgent versus the important is a, is a helpful paradigm to help us to prioritize our stuff. But what we're talking about here is the ultimate example of that. What is the most important? One thing is necessary, um, Jesus says to Martha. Um, and he says in, 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 in let me just read that, verse, um, Luke 10, verse 41 and 42. He says, But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Notice he says there, you are troubled, anxious and troubled by many things, but one thing. Many things, one thing. Many things, one thing. Okay? And there's a contrast between the many things and the one thing. And I, and I just want you to notice this. Why does Jesus bring this up with Martha? Is, is it the case that He's rebuking Martha because he loves Mary more. I think it's very clear in this passage and elsewhere in the Bible that Jesus deeply loves Martha. In fact, John says it in so many words. Let me read it to you. In John chapter 11, um, there's a portion um, dealing with Mary and Martha as well. It says, now Jesus, in verse 5, John, this is John 11 verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and Lazarus, their brother, so it says it in so many words. Jesus loved them. And you see it in this text as well. When Jesus addresses Martha, how does he address her? Martha, Martha. There's that repetition, that double Y. Whenever it's repeated, uh, names are repeated like that, it's, it's because there's deep, strong emotion involved. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. Master, Master, don't you care that we are drowning? Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled by many things. Can you hear the love in his voice? The reason why he's correcting Martha is exactly because he loves her and because he wants what's best for her. And he says, 
you've got to notice the many things and the one thing. And you've got to make a clear distinction between them. And you've got to think about them and you've got to prioritize them. You've got to prioritize them. He says, one thing is necessary. And what is that one thing that is necessary? It's to sit at the Lord's feet. And literally in the Greek, it doesn't, it doesn't come through strongly in the English translations. It says, listening. She was sitting at Jesus' feet listening to, what he, to his word. It literally says, continuously listening. If you look at the Greek tense, it, it's a continuous tense. She kept. So, so a good way to translate it is, well, she, Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet and she kept listening to his word. That was the very thing that irritated Martha. She kept listening and, 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 and she didn't stop and, and, and help. Um, listening to the Lord's word. So that's the one necessary thing. And, and that is discipleship. Discipleship is sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to his word. I just want to read you, just bring up that, um, uh, those scriptures about, about sitting at, uh, at the Lord's feet. I just want to read you them because this was a, a clear reference. Now remember, it's in the context of a portion a couple of chapters, the journey to Jerusalem and um, teaching on discipleship. It says, as Jesus and his disciples, right at the beginning of the portion, were on the way. And the way was a picture of discipleship, how you walk. Can you just bring up that slide, Antonio? Um, the, the slide about um, sitting at the feet of, of Jesus. Oh, there we go. So, here's a few examples, okay? Luke 8, verse 35. Then... People went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. So this guy, Jesus had this, this demoniac in the gatherings that had been amongst the tombs and you know, cut himself with stones and stuff. Jesus drives out the demons, and he becomes a disciple. He sits at Jesus' feet. In his right mind. Um, a, a very good example is Acts 22 verse, verse 3, where Paul, the apostle, says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, the city of Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. So he said, I, I, I received my education at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the great rabbis of the time. He was actually part of the Sanhedrin. He's mentioned elsewhere in um, in the book of Acts as well. And then there's an example in, in a, the, the Jewish um, uh, tradition in, 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 in Abbott. Um, Let your house be a meeting house for the sages and sit amidst the dust of their feet and drink in their words with thirst. Now it's learned from the rabbis. And, and Jesus is the ultimate rabbi. And we, we need, that's, that's what discipleship is. It's sitting at his feet. Now what does that sitting at his feet mean? What, what is discipleship according to that metaphor? It, it means sitting at his feet means um, not only listening to him, it means listening to him obviously, but submitting to him. Sitting under his teaching as it were. But why sitting at his feet? Because often the New Testament uses feet and walking as a picture of discipleship. One of the things that discipleship is, is doing certain things repeatedly, just like walking. One foot in front of the other. There's a rhythm to it. There's a repetition to it. So discipleship is um, rhythmic repentance and repetition within relationship. That's one definition of discipleship. It's rhythmic repentance and repetition within relationship. It's like walking. It's doing certain things over and over again. 
And that's why sitting at his feet. In other words, when you sit at someone's feet, when, when Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, she was being instructed by him, being taught by him. But she wasn't only, it wasn't only about what she was taught. It was also about what she caught. She was learning a lifestyle. Not just getting more information, but information that was modeled and that led to transformation. Life change, discipleship. That's what it's about. That's the one necessary thing. It's discipleship. Sitting at the Lord's feet and hearing His word, learning from Him. Um, and, and here's the point. Either everything flows from that place of discipleship, sitting at the Lord's feet and being discipled by everything. Either everything flows from discipleship or everything becomes distraction. You need to get this. <laughs> you need to get this. This is very important. If everything doesn't flow from a place of discipleship at Jesus' feet, then everything becomes distraction. Everything becomes distraction. Even the good things. Even family becomes distraction. Even serving the Lord, like Martha, becomes distraction. Um, what, what we need... Are we focused on what we, uh, what we need to become or what needs to be done? Because if we're focused on discipleship and everything flows from discipleship, we're sitting at Jesus' feet, then we're primarily focused on what we need to become. Not primarily, like Mary, not primarily what needs to be done, like Martha. Okay? And like I said, these are not mutually exclusive. If you focused, if you're sitting at Jesus' feet and you're focused on what you need to become, then you will eventually get around to what needs to be done. But you can focus on what needs to be done without ever giving attention on to what you need to be. In fact, in fact, I mean, our world is so focused on productivity, right? Especially in a place like Job, very driven, very productive. But it's a specific kind of productivity. It's external productivity. It's getting results. It's making money. It's the bottom line. Whereas Jesus is clearly focused on also productivity, but a different kind of product, internal productivity, which our world hardly even recognizes. You can get a lot of external productivity and get a lot of things done on the outside without getting anything good done on the inside. You can get a lot of good things done and accomplished on the outside, but actually at the expense of what's going on on the inside. And there's actually negative production on the inside. But Jesus says, no, no, I want positive production on the inside, and that will inevitably lead to positive production on the outside. But so often, in this highly productive world, people use all kinds of activities on the outside to actually avoid the inside. Isn't that so? To avoid confronting what's wrong, to avoid having to change, to avoid having to grow and become more like Jesus, to avoid discipleship, to avoid Jesus and relationship with him. When the many things prevent the one thing, they become distractions. Okay? When the many things, whether they're good or bad, when the many things prevent the one thing, they become distractions. Distractions are the many good and bad things that prevent the one necessary thing. That's what distractions are, the ultimate distractions. Um, distractions aren't just bad things, but good things that prevent God things. Are there any good things in your life that are preventing God things? 
Are there any good things in your life that are preventing the best things? Those are distractions. Those are distractions, even though they're good. The one good thing that is necessary should never be at the mercy of the many good things that are not. That's important. (laughs) We really need to get this. The one good thing that is necessary should never be at the mercy of the many good things that are not. I once saw a, a guy doing a, a teaching to, to little kids, and he was trying to, to explain this whole concept of priority and prioritizing. And he said he had like three or four big stones, and he had a container, and he had like, uh, like a glass container, see-through container. He had three or four big stones in one container, uh, a bunch of smaller stones in another container, and, and, a, and, a, and a heap of sand in a third container. And then he said, okay... Um, so often we put the, you know, the sand represents the small unimportant things, the stones, the slightly more important things, and the, and the, and the rocks, the bigger rocks, three or four bigger rocks, the very important things in your life. And he said, you, in, your, in your life you only have three or four really important things. But he says so often, and he took the sand and he threw it into the container, we put the small things in first. And then he took the, the stones and he put them in, he said, and, and then we, we put the, the slightly more important but still unimportant. And then we try and put the rocks in and the rocks didn't fit into the container. But then he did it the other way around. He said, no, let, let's first put in the rocks. The most important things come first. Put first things first. The most important things should never be at the mercy of the least important things. And then he threw in the stones and they sort of filtered through in between the bigger rocks. And then he threw in the sand and it filtered through in between everything else and everything, everything fitted in. And it was... It was exactly the same material. It was just a different order of putting it into your life, of prioritizing it in your life. So the one good thing that is necessary should never be at the mercy of the many good things that are not. So whereas the many things can be taken away, the one necessary thing cannot. Can you see what what Jesus says there in verse 42? He says, Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. You see, so often we focus on things that can be taken away from us. So often we, we, we prioritize things that we're going to lose in any case. I had a guy, a, um, an, an, a missionary, Jim Collins. Um, I think it was Jim Collins. What was his? I think it was Jim Collins, yeah, um, that I'm thinking of. Um, can't remember. I think I got maybe the surname wrong. Um, but he, he eventually died as a missionary at, at a relatively young age. I think it was in his 40s or so, trying to reach an un, um, unreached people group. But he said, he is no fool who gives those things that he cannot keep in order to gain those things that he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And what Jesus is saying is when you prioritize and put the one necessary thing first, you are sacrificing things that you're going to lose in any case in order to gain something you can never lose. So Jesus was saying here, Mary has chosen the good portion. Not only will it not be taken away from her, you know, sitting at my feet and learning from me, getting my word, not only will it be taken away, not be taken away from her so that she can go and serve with you in the kitchen, it'll It'll, it'll not only not be taken away now, it'll not be taken away in eternity. It'll never be taken away from me. It can never be taken away from me. The one thing that cannot be taken away from you is your relationship with the Lord. It's your walk with the Lord. Everything else you will lose. 
that house that you're working so hard for, that job that you're trying so hard to climb the, the ladder to success, even that family that you love so much, in a sense, in heaven, you're not going to be married to your wife anymore. The Bible says so. But the one thing you will not lose ever is your relationship with the Lord. The one necessary thing. Okay, so what is, what is Luke saying? What is Jesus saying? here? In a sense, what he's saying is beware how you serve the Lord. Beware how you serve Jesus. Okay? So he's saying... <laughs> Jesus, in Mark 10, in verse 45, he says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying here with this passage to to Martha, Beware how you serve me, because you're serving me. But beware how you serve me, because you're serving me in the wrong way. In in Acts 17, verse 25, it says, uh, Nor is he God served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In other words, beware how you serve the Lord. Don't serve the Lord as though he needs anything from you. Can you see that's how Martha was serving? She was serving the Lord as though he needed something from her. And, and, And more than that, Jesus is saying, don't you dare serve me until you've allowed me to serve you. Don't you dare serve me until you've allowed me to serve you. See, that, that was, maybe it's about priority. Distraction is all about wrong priorities. Mary had the priorities right. She was first allowing Jesus to serve her before she went out to serve him. Martha wanted to first serve Jesus. And then if she had time, she would allow Jesus to serve her. And Jesus is saying, that's completely wrong. That's the problem here. Don't you dare try and serve me until you've allowed me to serve you. If, if, if you serve me or try to serve me before I have served you, then you get the glory. And I will not share my glory with anyone. But if I serve you and then through my serving you enable you to serve me, then I still get the glory. Can you see why, why, why Jesus is so important? Why, why, why so uh, making such a fuss about this thing? So... Um, Beware how you serve Jesus. Think about this. I, 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 so often, you know, when I fly to Cape Town or so, which, which happens, happens ever so often, they always tell you, you know, in case of emergency, which is very unlikely, please don't think we're saying it's going to happen, but in the unlikely case of an emergency, you know, oxygen mask will fall from the top, and then what does it say? What do they always say? First put on your own oxygen mask before you help any children or people next to you. Because if you don't put on your, first, your own oxygen mask first, you're going to lose consciousness and you won't be of any help to anyone else. Can you see that's what Jesus is saying here? First put on your own oxygen mask and then you can serve others. First get your own needs met by Jesus and then meet the needs of others. Um, and if you understand, the, so, so the solution to the problem of distracted priorities is, is a decisive choice. And I'm going to try and get through this very quickly. Mary had chosen the good portion, literally. And so should we. Now the por- word portion here often refers to a meal. And I think here yeah, in the context, because it's in the context of Martha being anxious 
and troubled about a meal that she was preparing for Jesus to host him, that Jesus says, Mary has chosen the good portion, the good meal. She's contrast, he's contrasting the meal that Martha is trying to prepare for him with the meal that he is busy serving Mary. In Luke 4, when he's tempted, Jesus is tempted by the devil, what does he say? When, when the devil tells him to turn these stones into bread, what does he say? He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that's why he's saying, Mary has chosen the, the good meal, the better portion, the good portion, by sitting at my feet and hearing my words. Because that is a meal that actually feeds you to eternal life. All other meals, you know, won't last forever. This meal will actually last forever. Martha was trying to feed Jesus while Mary had chosen to be fed by Jesus or to actually feed on Jesus, if you, if you uh, can see it like that, uh, like that. Mary had seated herself. And, and, and here's the thing. We have to make a choice. It says Mary had chosen the good portion. It's clear from the text that Mary had made a choice. When it says um, Mary sat at his feet, it's, it's a bit of a... Of a, of a of a flat translation. What it literally says is, Mary had seated herself at Jesus' feet and, was and kept listening to his words. She had intentionally, actively seated herself at Jesus' feet and, and she wanted a front row seat to Jesus and to what he was going to say and to the meal that he was handing out, the portion that he was adding out. And we should do the same. Uh, we must also make the Lord our chosen portion. In Psalm 16 verse 5, is a beautiful uh, scripture. You can just quickly bring it up. Psalm 16 verse 5. It says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And there are a few other um, scriptures up there that also talk about um, portion. So we, we have to choose the Lord as our portion. We must likewise choose to give up certain good things for better God things, if necessary. We must choose what God has chosen. Just bring up Luke 9, verse 35. I need you to see this. Luke 9, verse 35 says, this is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Look at what it says. And a voice came out of the cloud, the voice of the Father, of course, saying, this is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. Can you see the parallels or, or the connections there? Mary had also chosen to listen to Jesus. In other words, the one necessary thing is to, cho to choose what God has chosen. To choose the one that God has chosen. Um, in, in, in Luke 23 verse 35, we have that same designation for Jesus mentioned on the cross. Jesus is, is being uh, killed on the cross. And it, it says, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. We must choose the one God has chosen. You see, in order, what did God Why was Jesus the chosen one? What did God the Father choose him for? He chose him exactly to not save himself, so that he can save others. Can you see how wrong the rulers got it? How how little they understood about what God was doing and why Jesus was chosen. Jesus chose us. He was the chosen one to choose us by choosing not to save himself. He could have saved himself. He could have called down legions of angels. He, he's caught for crying out loud. He could have 
got off that cross anytime he wants to. It wasn't the nails keeping him there. It was his love for us, the fact that he had chosen us. He chose to be the chosen one who was chosen to not save himself so that he can save others, so that he can save us. And, and, and what Jesus is saying is, choose me, the one who has chosen you. Choose me, the one who has chosen you. Um, in, in closing, we have a big advantage over Mary and Martha because after Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the new covenant, we actually have the Holy Spirit in us. They had Jesus physically with them. We have Jesus spiritually with us. See, the Holy Spirit is the spiritual presence of Jesus in his physical absence. That was the, the Holy Spirit is the solution of how do we, as Christians, deal with the absence of Jesus, the physical absence of Jesus. Because you can only be discipled by someone who's actually with you. That's why it says in the Gospels, and Jesus called the twelve to be with him. And so that he might send them out to go and do what he did. The first part of discipleship, the necessary part, is to be with. Now, how, do, how, how can we be discipled by Jesus if we were not with him? Well, he sent his spirit, who is like him, to be with us. Okay? In other words, here's the good news. We can actually do Martha activities with Mary, with Mary attitudes. Because Martha couldn't be in the kitchen and in the, in the living room at the same time. She couldn't make the food and sit at the feet of Jesus at the same time. We actually can. We actually can, because the Holy Spirit is with us everywhere. He's with us in the kitchen and in the living room. He's with us when we're doing Bible study and when we're preparing food for someone. And this was a big secret that, that a guy um, in, the, in the 17th century, uh, which was the 16th century, called Brother Lawrence discovered. He was a monk who was a cook in a, in a, in a, in a French monastery. And he discovered what he called practicing the presence of God, where he would make himself constantly aware of the presence of the Lord even while he was doing menial work like peeling potatoes and stuff. And as time went on, it became known that people who ate the food that Brother Lawrence prepared as a cook while he was practicing the presence of God, sitting at the feet of Jesus, as it were, became healed. So people started streaming from all over France to come and eat the food that Brother Lawrence made in his monastery while he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. See, he'd learned the secret. And he said, it doesn't matter whether I'm sitting whether I'm on my knees um, praying to the Lord or whether I'm standing in front of the, the, the stove or the oven. God is with me all the same. I can sit at Jesus' feet wherever I am. That's what we can do. Either everything flows from discipleship or everything becomes distraction. We must, like Brother Lawrence, learn to practice the presence of God. We must, like Mary, learn to sit at the feet of Jesus, but not only in the living room, also in the kitchen, also everywhere. Do you, have you chosen the one necessary thing above all else? Have you chosen it? Have you said, Lord, as a matter of principle, this is the one thing I'm never going to do without. This is the one thing that I'm willing to sacrifice other things for. Because you'll always sacrifice some things. You'll never have enough time. You'll always disappoint some people. So who are you going to disappoint? You're going to disappoint Jesus or you're going to disappoint someone else? Because you're going to have to choose beforehand who you're going to disappoint. You're going to have to choose what good things you're going to give up.
just want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want to encourage you. Choose the one who has chosen you. Choose the, the one that God has chosen. Choose the chosen one. Who chose to save us. Chose to actually not save himself so that he can save us. Choose him. Choose to sit at his feet. Choose to listen to his word. Choose for everything else in your life to flow out of that. So I just want you to right there where you are, just pray. And just say, Lord, I choose the one necessary thing. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jarberg.